How good to sing together this morning. What a joy to hear your voices lifted in praise to our God. You can be seated. I want to teach you a prayer that I want us to pray together. It's a prayer that St. Augustine prayed in his book, Confessions. Uh, Confessions is all prayer to God, and this is what Augustine prayed, and it's what I want us to pray together now. Augustine prayed, God, grant what thou commandest, and commandest what thou will. Two parts. Grant what you command, God. In other words, give us a heart to obey you. Whatever it is you command, God, do that in us. But the second part, I think, is, is the key to that prayer. God, do what you say to do in us, but command whatever you will. You see, I think some people think those should be flipped upside down. To say first, God, command whatever you will, and then if I like what you command, then grant what you, what you command. But no, it's grant what you command in me, whatever you command, and you command whatever you want me to. And so let's, let's have that attitude as we go to the Lord in prayer, because we're about to face some of the Lord's commands. Let's pray together. God, we pray. We pray that you would grant what you command, and you would command whatever it is you will for us. Oh God, we want you to work in us what is pleasing in your sight. And so would you give us a heart to obey? Would you uproot every pride and selfishness and idolatry in us that keeps us from doing what you command? Your commands are not burdensome. They are for our good. And so, Lord, command, let your commands be done in us, be enabled in us, and command whatever you want us to do. We are your servants. We want to do what you call us to do. By your grace, by your mercy, for your glory, and for the everlasting good of our souls, work in us now. Help us to delight in your word and what you've called us to. Help us to see the glory of Christ in the gospel and change us by it, we pray. All in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church family, I love you. And as we told our kids as they were growing up, Jesus loves you most of all. Jesus loves you most of all. And the way Jesus is going to love us in this moment is by speaking to us through his word. And so grab a Bible or open your Bible app and navigate to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. With all of the deep theology and rich doctrine in the book of Romans, it is amazing to me that this passage we are about to read is in the book of Romans. Follow along as I read Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Paul says, Let love... Be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. This is the living word of our living God. May He use it to give us life. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are saturated with the breathtaking truths of our salvation. Paul's teaching on the glorious gospel of Jesus. Paul makes clear there is nothing we can do to earn or deserve God's favor. It is only in Jesus that we can be justified and have a relationship with God. And then beginning in chapter 12, with that foundation laid, Paul fleshes out the implications of the good news for our everyday lives. Because the gospel is true and beautiful and breathtaking, we ought to live in a certain way. Paul calls us in verses 1 and 2 to offer our entire lives as a sacrifice of worship to God. The gospel lays claim on every part of us. We can withhold nothing back. And one of the clearest characteristics of how we should live in light of the good news of Jesus that Paul highlights in Romans 12 through 16 is that we should live in community together in the local church. A central part of what it means to be a Christian is that we care for and serve one another. We cannot just live as isolated individuals. We are responsible for one another. This is why it is essential that every Christian be part of, committed to a healthy local church. Because this is what it means to live out the gospel in our everyday lives. It is about our relationships in the body of Christ. And so remember last week, we saw verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, we are one body together. The church in Rome, whom Paul was writing to, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, are all vitally connected to one another in the church. This is what Jesus does. This is what the gospel does. Jesus forms a community that is his body here on earth. We are one body, Paul says, and we are individually members one of another. Jesus is our head, and we are his body, vitally connected not just to him as our head, but to each other as members of his body. Therefore, Paul says, how we relate to one another is massively important. And that's why Paul spends so much time fleshing out here how we're to relate to one another, what our relationships are to be characterized by. So what does it look like? to be vitally connected to Jesus and vitally connected to His body, the church. What does it look like to live as a believer, totally offering ourselves to the Lord as a sacrifice to Him? What would it look like to care for and love people who are very different from us, who have different opinions like Jews and Gentiles, like male and female, like slave and free, people with different Opinions, different hobby horses, different political views, different socioeconomic economic situations. How do we relate together in a body of believers? What will characterize our lives? Well, this passage and the rest of chapter 12 is like a machine gun of rapid fire commands. 
Paul is relentless here in pressing the implications of the gospel into our relationships. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I want us to focus on nine specific callings that we have as believers from verses 9 through 13. Okay, so this is a lot. Nine specific callings. By the mercies of God in Jesus, let's evaluate ourselves and our church and seek to apply these commands immediately. So church family, this is the kind of culture that we should strive to have at our church. This is the kind of culture that the gospel creates and enables and sustains in our midst. And so let's look at all nine of these callings. And what I'm going to do is stop and pray after each one of them that God would make this to be true at Miller Heights Baptist Church. And so this isn't just theory. This isn't just information to tuck away in our notes. This, these are commands from our loving Savior to be applied immediately with His help by His mercy. Number one, as members one of another, we should strive to be first genuinely loving. Genuinely loving. So notice verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. So I think this is like a heading over this entire section. Let love be genuine. And then notice in verse 10, he continues commanding this by saying, love one another with brotherly affection. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. So we're not just to love one another. It's not just a command to love one another and then move on. No, we're to have authentic love. We are to have a brotherly love. That is a kindred love, an affectionate love. This is commanding us to have an affection for one another. The word genuine in verse 9 means love that is free of pretending or acting. Genuine love is the opposite of counterfeit love. Genuine love doesn't wear a mask and try to pretend that it cares when it really doesn't. In other words, our love for one another shouldn't be merely spoken, but should be lived out. There should be action to our love. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are part of the same family, and therefore we must love one another genuinely, sincerely. Just as God has demonstrated His love for us, in the action of giving His only Son, so we love each other in action and in truth. Jesus said, the world will know we are His disciples. By what? By how true our theology is? By how great our buildings are? No, the world will know we are His disciples by our love for each other. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is the greatest virtue of all. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 says it this way. Let this challenge you. It says, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 
Let us not love merely with words, but let us love in deed and in truth. And so seriously consider in relation to this command whether your love for the other members of this church is genuine. Is it sincere? Do you love the other members of this church with brotherly affection? Like, do you hurt when others are hurting? Do you rejoice when others are rejoicing as verse 15 calls us to do? See, love is more than a feeling. Yes, it includes feelings. Affection is a feeling. But it's more than that. It includes actions. And so think about ways you can grow in love for other members of this church. Are you the type of person who waits for others to call and check on you? Or do you call and check on others? Do you jump at every opportunity to bring a meal or lend a helping hand to bless others? Church, we are a family. That's not just a metaphor to be thrown away. That's who we are. A family loves one another in spite of our obvious sins and disagreements and differences of opinion. Listen, the people of this church will get on your nerves and will offend you. I will get on your nerves. I will offend you. But we're called to love one another. Not just condemn or tear down or talk behind one another's, talk behind one another's back or, or what usually happens in, in my heart. We're not supposed to just ignore one another. We're called to genuine love. Brotherly affection. Genuine love assumes the best in each other. Genuine love is patient. Genuine love shows up in difficulty. Genuine love doesn't run when relationships get hard and messy. Do you love one another with this kind of love, with affectionate, agape love? Not just the people in your community group, maybe people you generally like, but the person who rubs you the wrong way, but the person who has different opinions than you. Do you genuinely love them? See, we often reduce love to just tolerating another human. I'll love him, but that doesn't mean I have to enjoy it. I've tried to love him, but it's hard, and so I'm just going to go my own way. Does that sound like genuine love? Does that sound like brotherly affection? May the culture at Miller Heights Baptist Church be one of genuine and authentic love that glorifies our loving God. Let's pray that it would be so. Oh God, I pray for genuine love in my heart. I pray for brotherly affection toward my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And I pray that our church would be characterized by this kind of love, a love that we see in you, a love that we've been called to have because we're made in your image and we're saved for your glory. Make us a place of genuine brotherly love for one another. And we pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Secondly, we should be discerningly abhorring. Discerningly abhorring. Notice the end of verse 9. Paul says, we are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In other words, the kind of culture we're to have is the kind of culture where we hate what God hates and we love what God loves. In other words, we're to be a pure culture, pure and holy as God is holy. 
Now, this might sound strange to you after a command to love that we're actually called to hate. But this kind of hate is actually an expression of love for one another and our love for God. The word abhor is a very strong word. To abhor something describes the way we should react to evil and sin. The word means to shiver in horror. We are to loathe evil deep down in the core of our being. It's supposed to make our soul shiver in disgust. We are to shudder at things that dishonor God and harm others. You see, when God saves us, our attitude towards sin totally changes. We once loved the darkness. We once loved the impurity of the world. But now we hate it with passion. Is that your response to evil inside of you? And evil around you? Do you abhor it? Do you loathe it? Does it make your soul cringe? See, we're to hate the evil actions and attitudes like abortion and racism, greed, lust, pride, and every other kind of evil that exists inside of us and around us. But notice we don't just abhor what is evil. We're also called to hold tightly to what is good. We're to turn away from evil and we're to embrace what is lovely and pleasing in God's sight. Do you see how this command affects our relationships with each other? It's tempting to read these individual commands and think of them disconnected, like this is just what we're called to. But think about this in a church. We're not to tolerate sin in our midst. We're not to tolerate it. We're to turn away from evil. We're to embrace what is lovely and pleasing. We're to confront sin Where we see it, we're to encourage others toward holiness and maturity in Jesus. And we need each other in this pursuit, friends. We need each other to be this kind of person. We can't do it by ourselves. I can't see my sin clearly, and you can't see your sin clearly. And we need each other to call it out and to help us battle it and to fight it. It is not loving to allow sin to exist unchallenged. Love demands we abhor the evil inside of us and around us. And love demands that we hold fast to what is good, to what is righteous. Is the culture in our church one of hating evil and clinging to what is good? May God make it so. And may God give us discernment to know what is evil and what is good in his sight. Let's pray for that kind of discernment now. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to discern the difference between what is evil and what is good in your sight. Oh God, help us not to be wise in our own eyes, but to trust you and know that you've called evil evil and you've called good good and help us to have discernment to know which is which. And God, when we see evil inside of us and around us, Lord, help us to abhor it. Help us to hate it. Help us to eradicate it however we can by your mercy, by your grace, and for your glory. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Third, we are to be graciously honoring. We are to be graciously honoring. Notice the command at the end of verse 10. Paul says we are to outdo one another in showing honor. We ought to be encouraging, honoring, praising each other in the context of our relationships in the local church. Our church is to be characterized by a culture of building each other up vocally, honoring one another. 
Now, hold on a second. I thought we're supposed to praise God alone. God alone is worthy of worship. So why are we talking here about praising each other, honoring one another? Why does Paul say we're to honor one another when we're supposed to honor God alone? Well, think about it like this. One of the ways we can praise God is by praising his work in his people. See, this is a way to deeply honor God by honoring those whom he is using, whom he is blessing. Here's how John Piper helpfully says it. He says, if God is sovereign and every good gift is from above, then not praising the good in others is a kind of sacrilege and soul sickness. He says, when our mouths are empty of praise for others, it's probably because our hearts are full of love for self. When our mouths are empty of praise for others, it's probably because our hearts are full of love for self. See, God is glorified when we affirm the work he is doing in others. We rob God of glory when we withhold honor from one another. And so Paul says, outdo one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so the command isn't to every now and then honor someone. No, the command is to be competitive in showing honor. Show honor more than anyone else, Paul says. Be the honor-showing MVP of the church. Wouldn't that, that would be a great biblical goal to strive after. Be known as the person who encourages others more than anyone else. And if we had a whole church full of people with that kind of attitude, I guarantee you people would want to know more about our Savior. This is a competition where everybody wins. This is a competition where there are no losers. See, nobody wants to be part of a church where all people do is complain and find fault and criticize. But friends, a church where honoring one another abounds, that church is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's learn to give more and more honor to one another in order to honor our great God, in order to praise our God. Let's praise one another where we see God at work. How do we do that? Just two random suggestions I'll offer you. Much more could be said about this, but first, thank people who serve. How do we do that? Just see when people are serving and tell them thanks. Tell them you appreciate what they do. Maybe it's someone who is serving in an official way, like on a committee or in a, a leadership role. Maybe it's someone who cleans the church. Maybe it's a Bible study teacher. Notice what people do and thank them for doing it. For example, I want to publicly thank the team of people who serve us every Sunday in the sound booth. You see, when they serve well, no one even knows they're there. But they free us up, right? They free us up to hear God's word. You can hear me right now, not because I'm so loud, but because there's someone there adjusting the volume. We can see the, the songs, the words up there because they are there. Someone has prepared that. Not only that, but because of what they do, we have homebound members and members who are sick this Sunday who are watching via live stream because of their labor. So Jonathan, Jonathan, Josh, Nick, Jagar, TJ, Preston, Mike, and anyone else I missed, thank you. We appreciate you. We honor you because you serve well. Tell someone you appreciate them today. Here's another, op here's another uh, idea of how we can honor one another. Help someone do something. 
help someone do something. One of the ways we can honor others is by helping them. If you know of someone who has a big task in front of them, offer to help them. Offer to loan them something they need. When we, we honor people when we serve them. It's a way to put them ahead of ourselves. It's a way to, to show honor when we are willing to sacrifice our time, energy, effort, resources to help others. And so if you have a skill or strength or energy or a tool or just some time that could make someone else's life easier, honor them by serving them. Honor them by helping them do something. I was honored just this week. My truck would not start. And both Matt Shirky and Travis Respondick helped me tremendously. I would not have been able to get my truck to the shop without these men honoring me by serving. I felt honored by them spending their time and energy helping me do something that I couldn't do on my own. Outdo one another, Paul says. Outdo one another in showing honor. May God give us a culture where graciously honoring one another is just part of our DNA because we want God to be glorified and honored most of all. Let's pray this would be true in our church. Oh God, I do pray that this culture would abound at Miller Heights Baptist Church that we would seek to outdo one another in showing honor, that you would be honored, that you would be praised in the way that we do this. Help us to see the people that need to be honored, that should be honored, and help us to honor them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fourth, we are to strive to be zealously serving. Zealously Serving. Notice the strong language Paul uses in verse 11. He says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So, according to verse 11, is it fine for us to lack zeal and fervor in serving the Lord? Is it fine for us to sort of gradually lose our zeal and coast along and take it easy in our service to the Lord? Is it fine for us to sit on the sideline and watch while others serve zealously? Is it okay for us to be lazy? Is it okay for us to be slothful? No. God expects us to never be slothful in zeal. God expects us to always be fervent in spirit. He expects us to live for him with passion and ambition. This is a challenging verse, verse 11. We must evaluate whether we have allowed our passion for Jesus to grow cold. Have we allowed other passions to crowd out this primary passion? Are we more passionate about our football team winning or getting to retirement than we are about spiritual things? Do we serve other purposes more zealously than we serve the Lord's? Have we gotten lazy in our fervor, in our zeal? As you evaluate your heart, consider the past couple years of your life. Are you more zealous for the Lord and his purposes now than you were a few years ago? Do you serve Others for his glory with zeal, with passion, with enthusiasm. If not, friends, ask God for zeal. Ask him for ambition. Ask him for enthusiasm and fervor. These are words that should characterize how others think about us. Do people think of you as zealous for Jesus? Do people think of you as enthusiastically serving the Lord? By the awesome mercies of God, be a person who is fervent 
in your service to the Lord. Not because God needs anything from us, but because he is worthy of our zeal. May God bless us with the culture of serving the Lord with an enthusiastic spirit. Let's pray that that would be so among us. Oh God, give us zeal. Give us zeal for you, for your church, for your purposes, for your kingdom to advance in this world. Make us enthusiastic servers. Give us fervency of spirit that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Fifth, we're to be characterized by joyfully hoping. Joyfully hoping. So verse 12 has three rapid-fire commands that each demand our attention. The first command is to rejoice in hope. Notice that the very next command in verse 12 is to be patient in tribulation. And so the call to be a joyful Christian is in the context of suffering, persecution, and difficulty. And the context of difficult relationships in the church. The command is not just to rejoice when things are going well, but to rejoice always even when you suffer. And so this command to joy is not dependent on favorable circumstances. Paul is not saying rejoice because you have so much health, wealth, and prosperity. No, he's calling us to rejoice in hope. That is the hope of eternal life with Jesus. Even when all around us is falling apart, we can have joyful hope. He is calling us to pursue our joy in Jesus who never changes. It is possible to rejoice always. Why? Because Jesus is always breathtakingly beautiful. Friends, joy in the Christian life is not optional. Joy is commanded. If you are indifferent to your own joy in the Lord, you are disobedient. How could we not rejoice in response to all that Jesus has accomplished for us? All our sins have been forgiven. Jesus drank the cup of the wrath that we should have had to drink. Jesus clothes us in his perfect righteousness. We're given the spirit to teach us and comfort us. We have all the promises of the Bible. We have the hope of the return of Jesus. We have the hope of eternity with Jesus. We have been adopted by the mercy of God. How should we respond to this gospel? The only response that makes any sense is rejoice in hope, specifically in our relationships with one another? Are our relationships characterized by this kind of hopeful rejoicing? Joy ought to abound in the community of the church. When people encounter our church, they ought to experience rejoicing, not complaining or bickering. May we be characterized by this massive joy in Jesus because of the awesome hope that we have in him. Let's pray for this to be true of us. God, I pray that we would be characterized by this kind of joyful hoping. Oh God, show us what we hope in and give us joy in that. Give us joy in who you are, in what you've promised to be for us. And may that characterize our church until Jesus comes. We pray in his name. Amen and amen. Six, we are to strive to be patiently suffering patiently suffering. So verse 12 says we are to be patient in tribulation. Remember, Jesus promised that in this world we will have trouble. Suffering and difficulty and persecution are promised in this life. And so how should we respond when things don't go the way we want them to go? Should we shake our fist in God's face and accuse him of injustice? 
Should we allow, uh, should we wallow in self-pity and wonder why no one else is suffering like we are? Should we drown our sorrows in the stuff of this world? No, Paul commands us to be patient, which doesn't mean that we grit our teeth and just tough it out. Patience implies trust and confidence. Patience implies that we are submitting ourselves to the Lord, waiting on His perfect timing, not seeking to seize control of the will ourselves. And so patience is not passive. It is an active desire to learn what the Lord is teaching us through the suffering He sends to us. When we are patient, we refuse to complain and moan. We seek the Lord's face even in difficulty and darkness all around us. And so let's fill this church with patient tribulation together. In this world, you will have trouble. Suffering will come. But let us suffer in such a way that doesn't impatiently take matters into our own hands, but suffering that waits on the Lord and draws strength from the rest of the body that we are part of. This is the culture we need to pursue in our church. May the Lord grant us a patient suffering. Let's pray that he would. Oh God, grant what thou commandest. You command us to be patient in suffering. Would you help us to be that, to do that? Give us patience in the tribulation we experience. And may this characterize our church. Please, Lord, we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Seventh, we are to be constantly praying. Constantly praying. So the the last verse of the last command of verse 12 is that we should be constant in prayer. In all that we do, we must be prayerful because prayer is the expression of trust in a sovereign God. If we say we trust God, we will be a praying people because prayer declares that we need God's help. When does Paul say we should pray? We should be constant in prayer. Or as he says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. We are to devote ourselves to prayer as individuals and as a church corporately. Friends, we cannot do anything of value on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if we want our church to make an impact in this world, if we want our lives to make a difference for the glory of Jesus, we will be a praying people. See, prayerlessness is practical atheism. It's evidence that we don't believe God can or will help us. If we go through our days without crying out to God, it says we don't believe He's there and we don't believe He can help us. And so in response to this particular command, let's commit ourselves to more and more focused and intentional prayer. We need to be constant in prayer in our relationships with one another. Let there be in our church more, hey, let's pray together about that. Let there be more of that. Let's seek and ask and knock until God pours out His blessing on our lives and on our church. Carve out more time for prayer. Learn to pray in every circumstance. Breathe with God awareness. He is near and He invites us to call on Him everywhere and always. And so may this be a culture in our church. May we, may we have this prayerful dependence on the Lord that is constant, as constant as breathing at our church. Let's pray that we would be constant in prayer. Oh God, we need you. We are desperate for you for everything and we pray that you would make us prayers. 
We pray that you would make us constant in prayer, that we would live with this awareness of your presence and that we constantly breathe out our trust and confidence in you. May it be so at Miller Heights Baptist Church. We pray it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Eighth, we are to be generously contributing. We are to be generously contributing. So in verse 13, we are commanded to contribute to the needs of the saints. Now listen, for these early Christians, this was a clear-cut issue. There were brothers and sisters who lacked basic necessities like food, clothing, and shelter. Often in the Roman Empire, when people became Christians, the Romans would persecute them by taking away everything they had. And there was no welfare system for them to rely on. And so what did other Christians do? They stepped up and they provided for one another. Read through the book of Acts if it's been a while since you've read Acts. In Acts, the Christians sold property and possessions in order that there be enough for everyone to provide for the needs of the body. This is something Christians have always been known for. Most of the soup kitchens and homeless shelters were started by Christians. Christians have always been known as those who are willing to sacrifice for each other. And look at this command. Now, while we certainly should be generous and helping the poor and the needy of our community, just notice that this particular command has to do with the needy in the body of Christ. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints. The saints doesn't mean super Christians. Saints means all Christians who have been saved by Jesus. We are to contribute to the needs among us, in our body, among the saints. So so listen to this. Saints have needs. You need to hear this because there are a bunch of TV preachers that are going to tell you that if you have needs, it's something wrong with you. But the scripture says saints have needs. God never promised that his people would not have needs. He only promised that he would meet those needs. And you know one of the ways that God does that is through the local church and our relationships with one another. And so we ought to help one another when there are needs in our body. When one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. We are to bear each other's burdens. We are to be generous to one another. And friends, over the last decade, I have seen our church do this in countless ways. So many people have generously sacrificed to meet needs among us, and it is awesome to see And our generosity shines the light of Jesus to the world. It shows that we trust Him to meet our needs when we help meet others' needs. It shows we trust Him to meet our needs when we help others meet their needs. And so consider how you could grow in being personally generous to those who have needs among us. How could you sacrifice to help make ends meet for someone else? What luxury could you forego to contribute to the needs of the body? May the Lord continue to give us this culture of sacrificial generosity at Miller Heights Baptist Church. Let's pray that it would be so, friends. Oh God, I pray that we would commend Jesus by being generous. I pray we would be generous as you have been generous to us. Lord, help us to contribute to the needs among us. God, I pray that you would help us to be sacrificially generous to show that we trust you to meet all of our needs. Lord, rip out the idol of security and safety and materialism from our hearts. Make us open-handed and generous.
for the glory of your great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, ninth and finally, we are to pursue being hospitably welcoming. Hospitably welcoming. So at the end of verse 13, Paul says, we are to seek to show hospitality. Now, I love verse 13 because it addresses both physical and spiritual needs. So often, the way that we can be generous is not just with money and possessions, but with offering ourselves to help refresh and strengthen others spiritually. And that's what hospitality is about. Think of hospitality primarily as meeting a spiritual need in each other. Hospitality is not just about opening your home and having a meal with others like we often think about. It certainly does include that, but that's not all that it is. But hospitality is an attitude. It's an attitude that welcomes each other into our lives. Hospitality is about how we receive others. Do we hold each other at arm's length, stiff-arming one another? Do we keep each other distant? Or do we welcome one another with warmth and sincerity? See, hospitality is not about performing. It's not about cleaning our houses and showing off how beautiful our homes are. Right? Often, we call having people over entertaining them. That's not hospitality. Rather, it's opening our lives to people, not trying to impress them. And the good news is that all of us can do that. All of us can welcome others into our mess. We don't have to clean up our lives to show hospitality. We welcome them just as we are, just as they are, in hopes that we all grow in maturity. Notice the command in verse 13 is to seek to show hospitality. In other words, go on the hunt for this. Go seeking this. The idea is not that we sit back and wait for opportunities to welcome others into our lives. No, we're to go doing this, seeking this. We're to be eager to show hospitality to one another. And so are we a hospitable church that welcomes one another, that welcomes guests and outsiders among us? Do people feel welcome and cared for when they walk in our doors, when they come to our community groups, when they join our Bible studies? Do they feel us look down on them? Or do they feel like we're eager to let them into our lives? One of my hopes is that each of us as individual church members would come every Sunday into really every event of our church and we would come with the attitude of looking to bless and encourage and refresh others. That we would come saying, God, who can I help today? Who can I encourage today? Who can I build up today? That's what hospitality is. We often come to gatherings or on Sunday and we're looking for what others can do for us. We're looking for who's going to come talk to us. But friends, instead, we should be looking for ways to be a blessing. If all of us came with that attitude, this would be the most hospitable place in all of Bell County. Let's strive to grow in our hospitality, warmly receiving others, showing genuine interest in and love for them. One of the verses that we're coming up on in Romans is Romans 15, 7. It's on our banners. It says that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. This is a high calling, church, that Christ has welcomed us fully. We didn't deserve to be welcomed by Christ, but we're to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Others don't deserve to be welcomed, 
but neither did we, and yet we have been welcomed by Jesus. And so may God bless us to be a hospitably welcoming culture that glorifies and honors him. Let's pray that we would be a hospitably welcoming church. Oh God, I pray this would be a place of genuine hospitality. I pray this would be a place where people's spiritual needs are met because we welcome them into our fold, because we welcome them to you, the great welcomer. Thank you that you've welcomed us. Help us to welcome others. We need you. Break down the pride and the selfishness in our hearts that we might love others in this way. Lord, we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here are the nine specifics Paul mentions. As part of a gospel culture in our church, we are to strive to be genuinely loving, discerningly abhorring, graciously honoring, zealously serving, joyfully hoping, patiently suffering, constantly praying, generously contributing, and hospitably welcoming. And so you know, the, you know the question to ask after we face these commands. And it is, how can we apply these today? Which one or two of these commands is God particularly impressing on your heart? How can you today grow in one of these particular ways? How can you apply and be a doer of God's word for the glory of Jesus today. And listen, none of these things do we do in order to earn God's favor or to get him to like us more. He already loves us more than any of us could ever imagine. But rather, these are all expressions of gratefulness for the gospel and for what Jesus has done for us. And so the only way we can be this kind of person is by the mercies of God. The only way we could ever increase and grow and have a culture like this is by the mercies of God. And so let's trust him now and let's cry out to our merciful Savior. And then after I pray, we're going to sing that Christ is our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you. We pray that you would help us to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice for you. God, we pray that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is the perfect will of God. God, I pray that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we would think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that you have given. And I pray that as individual members of the body of Christ, we would be vitally connected to one another, using our gifts to serve one another. And God, I pray that love would be genuine, that hospitality would be warm, and that all of these other ways you've called us to live would be true of us, would be true of me, oh God. And where we've failed, God, help us to repent. Where we've fallen short, help us to see our need for the death of Jesus and help us to trust and cling to what is good and right and holy and perfect. Oh God, do your work in our church. Help us to proclaim that Christ is our only hope in life and in death. And from that, from those mercies, would you transform us, conform us into your image. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.